Good morning. I'm so excited to have this opportunity to speak with you. Um, as Justin mentioned, I'm a psychologist. As he also mentioned, we share a passion for helping others, helping them to develop their best relationship with themselves, with the world, uh, with God. Um, I happen to fulfill that calling through psychotherapy in a therapy office and sometimes through teaching in a classroom. Um, this is a unique opportunity for me. Maybe a little bit nerve-wracking for me. It's a totally different dynamic. I'm used to that one-on-one -on -one where most of what I'm doing is creatively reacting and interacting with the material that's brought to me by a client who I care about. So this is different. I don't know you in particular. I don't know what you're bringing into the room today. Uh, but this one directional message hopefully will be something that you can dialogue with God about and listen to what the Lord might be saying to you through it. Um, maybe I should start by defining therapy the way I practice it a little bit. Um, therapy is not advice giving. And I think of it as far richer than just symptom reduction or teaching a bunch of coping skills. Um, I think a therapist is in the business of bringing about genuine and lasting change. Um, the word psyche in Greek literally means soul, so psychotherapy is soul care. So I'm invested in the healing of the soul, uh, in genuine change and maturation in beliefs, perspective, in personality itself. Uh, but change, change is a funny thing. Um, we crave change, and yet, in other ways, we fear it and we resist it, preferring the familiar. Um, and desiring change is a beautiful, inherent part of the human experience. It helps us mature and advance to heal and grow. But then again, on the other hand, sometimes that desire and drive for change gets unhealthy uh, in constantly expecting the novel, uh, new experience, never being at peace or content. Um, now, my primary work uh, is in trauma therapy, helping clients with multiple trauma experiences in their past to change and transform the impact of these traumas on their current experience and their interactions with others in the world. Um, there's certain themes that emerge from client to client to client um, doing trauma therapy regarding the wounds that they've experienced uh, as well as the healing and the change that they're seeking. Now, frankly, whether you have a trauma experience in your life or not, I think some of those themes that I see my clients dealing with and wrestling with, I think they're gonna feel pretty familiar to you. Um, in general, my clients are dealing with having past situations that are distorting or negatively influencing their current experience. Um, maybe they have difficulty with relationship and intimacy because they see it as dangerous because of past experiences. This is very hard for them to trust, hard for them to love. Um, lots of times they're dealing with their emotions in ways where especially hurt and fear and anxiety, they become very overwhelming. Or maybe it's how others responded to their emotions not soothing them, but neglecting them, taking advantage of vulnerability, those kinds of things. So they learn to see their emotions as nothing but a, a liability instead of seeing the potential asset that their emotional experience can be. There are plenty of negative distortions and beliefs that develop about themselves. 
They end up with self-criticism, even self-hatred, hatred of their body, hatred of themselves. They can be driven to please others, to exercise control, to look or be perfect. And a lot of times, there's also a broken God image. That experience of God that they've had in their lives doesn't match what other people tell them God is like, what they've read in scripture. And they wrestle with that. And all of these things, they impact my client's choices and their actions, whether it's related to food or body, relationships, substances, sexuality, work, faith. They've developed ways to survive. They're kind of beautiful and creative, but at the same time, they can be destructive or they cannot really be meeting their needs in a way that they can truly live life. So they are dealing with this broken state of the world and of themselves. And so often, I think the underlying theme is they're dealing with shame that separates them from their worth, from their value, from love. And they desperately desire, they truly need change. But at the same time, a lot of them simultaneously really doubt whether change can occur, whether things can be different, uh, or they fear investment in change, because change is hard. It's pretty scary. If we engage in change, then we're, we're going with something that's different, it's new, it's unfamiliar, something we haven't practiced and developed skills around. It's unpredictable, and worse yet, it's risky. There's vulnerability to others. There's vulnerability to the possibility of failure. What if I put my hope in change and I'm let down, I'm disappointed? And so there's that balance between desiring change and fearing it. And I think we all have that in our lives. Now, we get to the point where we're compelled toward change in various different ways. I think there's really two basic categories. One, sometimes we have that moment of conviction. There's an experience in life, a book we read, a sermon that we hear, or some other event that gets, it gives us an insight, an epiphany, that aha moment that convicts us and motivates us toward bringing about change in our lives. Other times it's quite different from that, and we've known that change that we yearn for for a really long time. We've suffered or at least felt a nagging itch uh, in a particular area for a while. And I, I mentioned suffering. Here's one of my ways of defining it. Suffering exists in that gap in between what our expectations are and what our experience is. And suffering is an experience that naturally we seek to avoid. So suffering also then is something that serves to compel us toward change. And there are times that we've felt that suffering gap in between expectation and experience for a really long time. It's nothing new. It's very familiar. So whether it's a new novel or a very well-known discomfort with the way things are, we feel compelled toward change. Um, but we also all know that just because we have found this determination to bring about change doesn't mean that we automatically then result in that change that we seek. Now, 
when my clients come to therapy, they are seeking change, healing, growth, something like that. And I'm always trying to help clients understand, well, what is therapy? What is it that we're going to do for 45 minutes once a week or something like that that is going to bring about change? Um, and the first way I try to describe that is that it's different from going to the doctor's office. You know, if you're a little bit sick, you go to the doctor's office and essentially goes like this. You go in, you explain the symptoms, they do a little bit of an exam, and they use like their doctor brain and their medical training, and they give you a diagnosis, they give you a prescription, it's like take two and call me in the morning. I kinda wish life was like that, with psychological, emotional, spiritual change, but that's not how we work. I mean, if, if it was, I don't think I'd ever need more than three sessions with a client. It'd be nice, be quick, but the human experience is more complicated than that. Um, we can understand the problem and its sources. We can accurately articulate the goal. We can make a commitment to change, but the path toward change, that's the hard part. Um, it's not about determining whether to change or what change we want, although those can take some work and some wisdom as well, uh, but it's about how to bring about and sustain that change. Um, if any of you have been in therapy, you might have had that frustrating moment when like, you ask your therapist a question, the therapist responds with a question like, we don't, it's not advice giving. Well, we're gonna have a little bit of that today. Um, on the one hand, as you might expect, I don't have all the answers for you. Um, problems that we face, the change that we want, the, the problems have multiple causes. There are multiple things in our life that are sustaining those problems too. There's no nothing but that goes along with this. Oh, my depression, my whatever. It's caused by nothing but this one thing and there's nothing but this one solution uh, that's gonna help. It's complex, it depends, each situation is unique. I can get like really technical and we can say there are multiple impinging nature and nurture factors that systemically play a role in causal, you know, it's complicated, right? But on the other hand, there are some universal or at least common themes that if we understand them, I think they can truly help us both understand and then effectively engage in meaningful change. So today, I wanna offer some help in better understanding how change occurs. I wanna draw from my clinical work in therapy, uh, my personal life, scripture, faith, all different sources of truth and wisdom about how we can actually instigate meaningful change in our lives. First, I wanna begin by looking at approaches maybe we've already considered or tried only to find that that change is awfully short-lived or maybe the change doesn't occur at all. Um, we need to be able to grieve the insufficiency of simple answers and some of the myths about change. We wish they worked, but they don't. And it's not just that they don't work, we believe that they will, we invest in them, we put our hope in them, we try, then we fail. And it's not just that it didn't work, but then we leave discouraged and wounded. So we have to reject some enticing but oversimplified messages that others might give us about change. I mean, people get rich on this stuff. They sell us books and seminars and formulas and diets and more. They capitalize on that discomfort in between experience and expectation 
sometimes they contribute to that, setting expectations so that we are uncomfortable, so we'll buy their product and buy their ideas, but their focus is on profit. It's not on progress. I mean, the weight loss industry alone is valued at $71 billion, and a lot of it just doesn't work. Unfortunately, I think we find well-meaning experiences in the church with people trying to give us a pathway to change that is insufficient or, or just backwards. Um, man, one of the ones that I see too often in my office, I get a client who comes in. They're dealing with pretty significant chronic issues around anxiety. It's negatively impacting their life. And they've gone to a pastor or a friend, and that person's like, well, have you prayed about it? Yeah, I prayed about it. Oh, well, you know, there's this verse, Philippians 4, 6, uh, be anxious about nothing, but in prayer and petition, present your request to God. And do you not think that person has already looked at that verse? Like, they've looked up anxiety in the Bible. They've tried to figure it out. And part of the problem there isn't that people are offering the idea of Scripture and prayer. Those are good things. But maybe it's a little bit oversimplified just to say, oh, you're dealing with anxiety? Here's a verse about anxiety. Um, and the thing that really concerns me there is it's not just that it doesn't work, but if somebody's saying it's supposed to work but it didn't work for me, great. Now I'm not Christianing right either. And we get that spiritual shame associated with what we're already suffering under. I think another thing that sometimes happens in faith in the church is what we term uh, in psychology uh, spiritual bypass. I think a lot of times people use language that's about deliverance, the Lord's power and the Lord's ability to deliver us out of the thorn in our side or whatever it is that we're dealing with. And again, can the Lord deliver us? Absolutely, absolutely. But sometimes that's not really what's driving us. It's not as much about our faith in God and deliverance, but it's more that deliverance sounds a whole lot easier than walking a pretty difficult psychological, emotional, relational journey. And so it's, it's not that we're really seeking deliverance. We're avoiding. We're avoiding a journey. We're avoiding the hard work. That's spiritual bypass. Um, God doesn't promise protection through prevention of suffering or deliverance immediately from it. You know, Psalm 23, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil because you're in an Apache helicopter raining fire down on my enemies. And No, because you are with me. You rod and your staff, they're great weapons. No, they comfort me. God doesn't promise protection through prevention of suffering. Instead, God promises provision through his presence in our suffering. Or maybe another way to talk about that, I learned this from my clients, the only way out of it is through it. Yeah, it's like the children's book, Going on a Bear Hunt. Can't go over it, can't go under it, can't go around it, gotta go through it. Um, and that's not always an easy process. Um, but I think it's worthwhile. So change isn't just about commitment. Change isn't simple. Change is a journey. So let's look at three aspects of a journey of effective change. 
The first one, change is an emotional process. Oh, great, here come the therapist cliches. Uh, Next he's gonna say, like, tell me about your mother, right? Uh, But no, I, I mean, therapists are famous for saying, and how does that make you feel, right? But there's, there's some truth, some wisdom, some value behind these things that are therapist cliches. Um, how does that make you feel? Maybe that's some important stuff. Because one thing that we've learned in psychology is that insight is insufficient for change. Insight is necessary. I mean, without insight, we're not aware that we have a problem. We don't understand our problem. We don't understand the right goal to be searching for. Insight is necessary, but it's insufficient for change. Usually what happens, we get that insight, and if we think that's all we need, we get stuck with what clients a lot of times call that head-heart problem. Like, my head gets it, but my heart doesn't, or something along those lines. Um, Romans 7, I think, talks about that a lot. Paul is speaking about his condition as a human being after, by the way, having his encounter with Jesus and saying, I believe, and putting his faith in Jesus. So after that transformation, Paul's saying, for I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out, for I do not do the good I want, or the evil I do not want to do, this is what I keep doing. My clients have the same thing. They can know that they are lovable. They they can know that that other person is in fact safe, even though my trauma says they're not. They can know that God is unconditionally loving. But there's always that thing where like, well, yeah, the Bible says that, but that's not really true true about me. Um, Or I know it's true, but I never experience it. It's like it doesn't impact their life. They know it, but they don't feel the impact. They don't feel the actual change. And a lot of times that's because you can't just talk or logic your way away from old experiences and old beliefs. We need to cry and rage and express fear and things like that. That's not fun, but it can be pretty meaningful. There's another term that... Irvin Yalom, who's really famous for uh, group psychotherapy, has really picked up and run with um, that relates to emotions and how they play a role in our change. Um, If insight is insufficient for change and we need emotion in there, he talks about this thing called a corrective emotional experience. I'm gonna break down all three of those terms. Um, The last one, experience. So this isn't just sitting around pondering our change. It's having an experiential event, not just a thought exercise. And and it's corrective in that we have an experience that ends up having a different outcome than the ones that we've had in the past or than what we expected in a positive direction. Um, And then this positive and sometimes surprising difference between that negative expectation and this moment's experience, again, it's that gap between expectation and experience, but this time in a positive direction, Rather than producing suffering, it's going to produce some powerful, positive emotional responses. So we get an experience that's corrective and has this emotional reactivity to it. And what we have learned is that this is a really powerful catalyst for change. You know, maybe, for example, 
you've had experiences in the past where you expressed your need. You asked somebody for something. You expressed a need, and it resulted in you being told that you're too much to handle. You're needy. And that person judges and distances and rejects. Well, those are negative emotional experiences that we carry with us, and that taught me a lesson about what I should or shouldn't do with my needs. I'm less likely to express my need to that next person. But what if I take a risk, I express my needs, and the person instead responds with understanding, compassion, my needs actually being met? That's an emotional moment that can actually change our expectations and then change our action in the future. These are positive catalysts for change, these corrective emotional experiences. Something that insight alone can't provide, although it's not enough to just have a corrective emotional experience. That's a nice feel-good moment. But then we do have to bring insight back into it. So we have the corrective emotional experience, but we need that second level of noticing that we had a corrective emotional experience, pondering how different it was from our expectations, what it might mean about our beliefs, about our needs and other people and how to communicate, that kind of thing. We need to reflect on those corrective emotional experiences. So we marry those two things together. You need insight, you need a corrective emotional experience, and then we need to reflect on and glean the true value and power out of that corrective emotional experience. So think about some change that you might want to bring about in your life. Or maybe you've tried and you haven't succeeded. Is it possible that you've avoided the emotional component and engaging that piece? Maybe you read a book, processed the theology, made a plan, prayed for deliverance, something like that. But you've avoided the emotional content of it. Um, I mentioned before that my clients often have difficulty doing that head-heart combination, like living in the truth of the insights. I find almost universally that one of the things that my clients need to do, we call it parts work. You think about the different aspects of yourself or your personality, and they need to get in touch with their emotional self. Like left brain, right brain, left brain's kind of logical, right brain is kind of emotional. If your logical brain is doing all the therapy and your right brain is feeling some wounds, doesn't your right brain need some therapy too? And so my clients with childhood sexual abuse, maybe they don't call it their emotional self. Maybe it's talking to that wounded little girl inside of them, um, letting her express tearfully and maybe not even with words what she really experienced, what she's needing but not getting. So take a look at the change that you're looking for, the, the suffering that's driving that. Um, maybe just ask yourself, and how does that make me feel? Or, or maybe you need a little bit more structure to get engaged with that emotional self or that childhood self. Um, Sometimes we do this thing called the empty chair technique. You literally sit down in a room, you sit on a chair, you put another chair across from you. And imagine your emotional self sitting in that chair. Look at him, notice him, let him speak. What's he saying? What are her feelings or her emotional experiences? What are her needs? So get in touch with the emotional component because change is an emotional process. 
Um, there's an aspect to exploring your emotions or having that corrective emotional experience that leads to a second piece of the effective change journey that I want to highlight. Now, when my client is opening up her emotional experience to herself, it can be very meaningful and impactful. But in therapy, I'm not simply sitting there watching this occur. So when I, as a therapist, hear my client say, express, feel things that she hasn't been willing to explore or express for a decade because it just hasn't felt safe. How powerful is that if I can understand, validate, join in the grieving, offer soothing care and love? That can be a pretty healing thing. So corrective emotional experiences are relational experiences as well. So change is an emotional process, but change is also a relational process. Carl Rogers, a very well-known psychologist, um, talks about the transformative power of relationships, specifically in being truly heard by another person. And, and he contrasts the idea of somebody listening to someone truly hearing. Um, he talks about hearing the sounds and sensing the shape of this other person's inner world. So it's not just hearing the words that are said, but it's hearing, noticing, and understanding the experience that the words only partially represent. For him, he says, when someone can hear me, it rescues me from the chaos of my feelings. When people don't succeed in hearing us, it's wounding, it's crazy-making. Roger says it makes some people literally psychotic. We get some experiences in the Bible that show us how powerful it can be to join people in that way. I look at the story of Job, specifically near the beginning of Job, in Job chapter two. Job is this guy who's living life and just about anything that could go wrong goes wrong. He loses everything. Right after his wife does like a bang up job with advice giving, she says, curse God and die. Um, Right after that, we get his three best friends and their response. Um, Job 2.11 says, when Job's three friends, this guy, that guy, and the other guy, um, they hear about all the troubles that had come upon him. They set out from their homes and met together by agreement to go and sympathize with him and comfort him. When they saw him from a distance, they could hardly recognize him. They began to weep aloud. They tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads. Then they sat on the ground with him for seven days and seven nights. No one said a word to him because they saw how great his suffering was. So if we can make the move from suffering into change a relational journey, I think one of the most valuable things people can do for you is to simply join you. Job's friends didn't say, wow, that sounds rough. I'll pray for you, then peace out. They sat on the ground with him for seven days and seven nights. They had other things to do, but they sat with him. And I like to think that when it says, no one said a word to him because they saw how great his suffering was, that that's not about, they were so overwhelmed by his suffering that they were speechless. I think that's a respect of the condition that he was in. 
that maybe listening and joining is more important than speaking and trying to give advice. Now, unfortunately, later on in the story, Job's friends, they get antsy, they stand up, and they have plenty of theology that they throw at Job. And they were wrong, and it was hurtful. So let's stick with this model. What if people could sit on the ground with us and not say a word, just join us in our suffering? I had that. I'm grateful for that. I was depressed for two and a half years when I was in college. That's more than half of my college career. Um, I had a number of people who joined me. There's a guy named John Cranmer. John offered to do lunch with me Monday, Wednesday, and Friday for like a year. Now, I bailed on that a lot because I was depressed and I slept in and whatever, but he was still there for me. And he would sit with me at lunch for an hour, hour and a half till they shut down the cafeteria and just listen and empathize. Didn't give advice, didn't give challenge. He just sat with me. That was meaningful. I had professors who also did amazing relational engagement. I had a therapist who did amazing relational engagement. I got a whole sermon on that one, but we don't have time for that today. Let's look at Christ. I think Christ models this for us really well too. Look at Jesus with the woman at the well. Um, You find this in John 4. He truly heard her and what her needs were. I mean, there's stuff Jesus did that I I don't know how he did it. I don't think we could do it. The woman says, I have no husband. Jesus says, you're right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you've had five husbands and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have said is quite true. Not sure how Jesus did that. But that's deeper knowing than the words she said, right? But if we go further in the story, I think there's something that we can try to emulate. Um, She asked for water from the well. He didn't just give her water from the well. He offered her the water of eternal life. He went beyond her words into what her, the shape of her actual experience was. He truly heard what her need was. And I mean, Jesus' existence itself is just a beautiful example of that relational joining that can happen in our change journey. Now, John 1 very beginning of the Gospel of John says, in the beginning was the Word, the Word is Jesus. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning, and slightly after the beginning when we messed it all up, and there's the fall, there's sin, there's brokenness. He he was there. But then John 1.14 says, and the Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Dwelling, seven days and seven nights kind of stuff. Um, Jesus bore humanity. He left the Father and had our human experience. He joined us. He needed to grow up and develop himself. He needed to resist temptation. He built relationship, all of it. He joined us. So if the problem is human shame and suffering and we're trying to grow change through that, God's answer, the method of it is pretty profound. The intervention was incarnation. God's intervention in response to our suffering was, let me join you. And so if we want our change to be relational, it gives us an opportunity to be heard, to be truly known and understood, to be joined. And then ultimately that contributes to healing, to healing change. So can we risk 
allowing our change process to not be done just on our own where it feels kind of safe, is simple, but take that risk of being relational. Talk to God. Now, most of us who believe in God through a Christian lens believe that God knows our heart, he knows our thoughts, he knows, he knows our feelings. So why not talk to him about it? You're not gonna tell him anything he doesn't already know. What if we could have a corrective emotional experience with God in response to those areas of change that you seek? Or talk to a person. Yeah, this gets tricky. Someone will need to journey instead of giving advice or just saying, I'll pray for you. They need to hear and not just listen. And yes, there's risk there. But without that risk, it's a guarantee you won't get that corrective emotional experience that could come from letting someone journey with you. And this is who we want to be as a church at Rock Point, a safe community that journeys well. I know for a fact that Justin and the staff, they're making plans to really help grow all of us into those kinds of people who can be safe community to journey with people through suffering, through change. Um, and we're not gonna be perfect. I tell my clients all the time, I'm imperfect. I'm gonna hurt you, I'm gonna wound you. I'm imperfect, but I'm good enough. So take the risk. Allow people to join you in your process. Now, to bring up my third point for effective change journey, I wanna illustrate one of those risks that I was just talking about with getting relational with people. Um, it's the word accountability. Throw it around a lot in the church. Um, yeah, I'm dealing with a problem, and yeah, I need to be relational about this, so um, go to my friend, and yeah, I, I need you to help hold me accountable to this. So this is this thing that I'm struggling with. If we stop there, and accountability is just about, I, I just confess to you what I'm dealing with, so hold me accountable. If we don't go any further than that, there's a real danger and because that accountability will basically just look like this. Okay, I confess to you this awful thing that I'm doing, and I really want to stop doing. So check in with me every once in a while, and I am motivated to change because hopefully the next time you check in with me, I can say, nope, didn't do it. Brought about the change. It's almost this fear-based motivation for change where I hope that when you come back to me, I've got it all together. I've got it all fixed because I'm trying to avoid the fear of saying, well, I've failed or I haven't made that change yet. I'm trying to avoid shame. And it doesn't work. The, the problem is fear and shame, they're not the motivations we want. Our motivation for change is really essential in order to make change actually work. We need to replace shame-based motivation with gratitude-based motivation. Let me fill that out a little bit. Now, shame isn't the same as guilt or conviction. Um, shame isn't about what we do, it's about who we are. I've found a really quick and easy way in therapy to detect the presence of, of shame in our perspective and in our motivations. I've got all these one-liners that I use in therapy. It's like one sentence and it carries relatively profound truth. I've come up with a couple of them. I've stolen most of them from somebody else. Um, here's one for you. Should is the only swear word in my office. So it's not like you're not allowed to say the word should, 
But I will never fail to notice when the word should is uttered in my office. Why? I'm always listening for should because should implies an expectation. There's that word again. Implies an expectation too often that we're not living up to and what a great recipe for applying shame to ourselves. So there are other therapists who have different ways to say that, but you know, we all as therapists understand that shame and judgment are toxic. And the entirety of Christian faith, by the way, I think is really about our worth versus our shame and God's relationship to us through all of that. Um, maybe there's another sermon here for another day, but here's, here's the short version, the Sparks Note, the Cliffs Note version. First, we begin with worth and value that cannot be erased by our failures. Um, Richard Butman, one of my professors, in fact, one of the people who played a huge role in helping me recover from my depression, but one of my professors at Wheaton, he's written books on spiritual integration. One of the things that he writes is, we have worth and value simply because God intended for us to be. So we have worth and value because God, in love, made the choice for you to exist rather than not exist. Just the fact that you exist means a God in love said you have worth and purpose. And that can't be taken away. It can't be taken away from us. And yet, shame is the result of the fall and broken state of humanity and the world. The Bible, I think, is the story of God's loving response to our condition of shame. It's God figuring out how change needs to occur in response to our shame. Um, I'm gonna skip through the entire Old Testament. Although, I will say, the Old Testament is filled with stories of humans who attempt and fail miserably at change. And then, like, that's the Old Testament. Um, but let's skip forward to what we've already talked about a little bit, the gospel of Christ. I mentioned before that the intervention is incarnation. But it also says that this is love while we were still sinners. Christ died for us. Hebrews says Jesus endured the cross scorning its shame. So our worth is not dependent on our actions, on our ability to change. We don't have to change to become worthy. In fact, we can't change to become acceptable. Psychology says it doesn't work, and that's not how God and faith and God's love work. If I must change in order to become acceptable, have value, be good, deserve love, that's conditional acceptance. It's fear-based motivation for change. It's driven by insecurity. It doesn't work. It's hopeless. Instead, we need to know that because God's love is unconditional, our worth is unconditional. Um, if we have worth and value simply because God intended for us to be, that's a pretty secure base from which we can then try to bring about change. Not so that we can become worthy. If I have worth and value already, then I desire change because it's better for me and it's better for those around me. So I can have gratitude that I don't have to earn acceptability. And what if we think about God's expectations? You know, all throughout the Bible, there's like, be this and don't be that. What if those are God's expectations for us? 
rather than God's expectations from us. It kind of changes our motivation for change. So I'd encourage you to determine the role that shame or conditional worth is playing in your motivation for change. In your self-talk, listen for the word should. Is it telling you that change is necessary so that you can be good enough? Um, I've got other ways that we could potentially talk about it. I'm gonna skip some of them for time. I wanna talk about my kids for a second though. We need to intentionally divorce our worth from our behavior. With my kids, I will never tell them, you are a bad child. I'll tell them, I will tell them, you're making bad choices. That definitely happens. But my kids, they know the difference between those. And if I slip up and I say, you are mean, rather than you are acting mean, you better believe my kids are gonna call me on it. Because they know the difference. It happened just like two days ago. One of my kids was like, you said this, you meant this, didn't you? They know the difference between doing something bad and being bad. They have learned from my wife and me that their worth is unconditional regardless of their behavior, whether they can change or not. And kids sometimes have trouble bringing about change in their behavior, even though their parents would really like them to learn it a little bit faster. But I think God feels that way about us sometimes too. Like how many times do I have to? But God's not saying you're a bad child. So what if we work backwards through all of these? If we start with this secure base of changing not because we must, but because we can. Because we and God want better for us. We're not changing because it's necessary to become acceptable. If we start with that security of who we are, doesn't it make it a little bit easier to risk that relational thing? Doesn't it make it a little bit easier to risk the emotional component of change if we can be secure in who we are no matter what this journey brings? You know, back to the fact that there is no simple prescription or diet plan when it comes to change. Um, Change is a complex journey, but perhaps it's not just something we need to grieve. What if that complexity is richness, um, not just frustratingly complicated? What if it's not an obligation, but an opportunity to invest in change as an exciting, lifelong journey, to see relational dependence as loving support, to see emotion, especially the pain, as an opportunity to be empathically cared for? and to see the whole process as not earning worth, but being excited because we can grow from the security of already having worth and value. And where did that come from? God's unconditional love um, that has endured from the beginning of time till today. Um, it's God's ultimate act that Christ chose to do for us to become incarnate, to die for us in order to bring about the true change that we yearn for and that we need to restore us from shame to life, to a life with worth, value, and love. So I wanna end with a passage from the book of Hebrews in the New Testament. And as I read through this, I want you to notice that scripture passage through the lens of everything we've talked about today, the emotional component of change, the relational component, especially that security and worth in God's love. 
and that maybe that journey can be a rich and exciting journey. In Hebrews 12, says this, therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. Let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. Let me pray for us. Dearest Lord, as we wrestle with the idea of change, not just whether to change, but how to bring about change, help us to find relational, emotional connection with you, to have that corrective experience that truly shows and reminds us that you love us no matter what, that change is a journey you want to engage on with us, that you will guide us, you will grieve with us, you will celebrate with us. Lord, help us to have the courage to avoid the myths, to avoid the oversimplified pictures of miraculous delivery. Help us to have courage and even excitement at a journey walking hand in hand through life with you, constantly changing so that we can love ourselves, love others, and love you more and love you better. Thank you, Lord, for your love and for all that it will empower us to do. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.